You know, often churches will flatter themselves with the title, A New Testament Church. Their members are proud of the fact that they go to a New Testament church. Pastors make it their goal to grow New Testament Christians and build a New Testament church. I used to think I wanted to be a part of a New Testament church until I read Paul's New Testament letter to the church at Corinth. (laughs) The Corinthians, they were a New Testament church, but it was a church fraught with problems. This was a church divided There was such dissension among its members that they were suing each other in the pagan courts. Blatant immorality was tolerated. The God-given roles of male and female were being ignored. Communion had become an excuse to pig out and scarf up. Spiritual gifts were being abused. Foundational truths like the resurrection were being called into question. And perhaps worst of all, love had taken a back seat. Hey... I want our church to model New Testament ideals, to experience New Testament expansion, to display New Testament power. But if being a New Testament church, is like, it means being like the church at Corinth, <laughs> well, then forget it. Understand this church. Understand its environment. The city of Corinth was a vile and a wicked place. It was a home for all of the people who appear on the Jerry Springer show. I mean, the wackos, the sickos, they all lived in Corinth. Among the Greeks, the phrase playing the Corinthian was synonymous for drunkenness. A Corinthian girl was a prostitute. Corinth had a sordid reputation. Every night in Corinth, 10,000 so-called priestesses left the temple of Aphrodite and hit the streets to play the prostitute. They turned tricks to raise temple funds. You see, sexual immorality in Corinth was not just tolerated, it was institutionalized as a part of the Corinthian religion. On his second missionary journey, Paul spent 18 months in this den of sin. He built a vibrant church, a spirit-filled church, but when he left, problems developed. Rather than influencing the world, Corinth influenced the church. Paul was in Ephesus when he heard of these problems and he penned this letter of correction. It's been said, boats are made for the water, but you don't want water in your boat. Likewise, the church is made for the world, but in Corinth, the world got into the church. Paul begins his letter by acknowledging the good that existed in the church at Corinth. The believers were set apart to Christ. They were called to be saints. And they were blessed with all kinds of spiritual gifts, utterances, and knowledge. In verse 7, Paul goes as far as to say, you come short in no gift. You know, later in the book, we'll discover that the Corinthians were misusing and abusing these spiritual gifts. But never does Paul suggest they should stop using them. The presence of spiritual gifts in the church was viewed by Paul as a positive and needs to be viewed by us as a positive. In verse 10, Paul begins to deal with the problems in the church. And he starts with the divisions and the schisms that had fractured this church's unity. People had rallied around their favorite teacher and created little cliques within the body of Christ. Some were of Paul, they said. Others were of Apollos or of Cephas, that is Peter. And some said, we're of Christ. In other words, we don't need any teacher but Jesus. It reminds me of the true story of a man named Paul Letts. Paul took a terrible fall. 
He punctured a lung, broke some ribs, and was bleeding internally. While lying on a bed in the emergency room, he witnessed two doctors arguing with each other over who was going to put the life-saving tube into his crushed chest. Their argument turned into a shoving match when Paul eventually screamed out, Please, somebody save me! Two other doctors working at the same time had to step in and perform the procedure. This describes what was going on in the church at Corinth. Wounded people were looking to this church for help while the Christians in the church were arguing with each other over picky stuff. In verse 13, Paul asked them, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, they had forgotten their common ground. Let's never do this. Let's never let this happen in our church. Let's not forget our common ground. This church is the body of Jesus. Jesus died for us. We are baptized not into this or that, but into Jesus. You see, the main thing is Jesus Christ. And it's our job to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's remember our common ground. Apparently, some of the Corinthians were dividing over the issue of baptism. Today, baptism remains a divisive issue. Some churches teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. Obviously, Paul disagreed with that notion or he would have never had such a flippant attitude. He says, I don't remember baptizing any of you guys. With a few exceptions, he says, he didn't baptize anyone there in Corinth. And he explains why in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Notice that. Apparently, the two are not the same. Baptism comes after the gospel, but it is not a part of the gospel. It's important, but it's not essential. Understand, the Jews were impressed with power. The Greeks with wisdom. And in verse 18, he says that the message of the cross was was an affront to both ideals. That Almighty God would subject Himself to physical torture, appeared weak to the Jews and foolish to the Greeks. God saves us in a way that insults our pride and mocks our worldly values. This is why Paul says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. The weakest picture you can imagine is indeed the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is God's secret weapon. Once a seminary founded by a very godly man had an arch over its entrance. With the engraving on it, we preach Christ crucified. But over time, the ivy grew up the arch and the greenery covered over the word crucified. So that the arch read, we preach Christ. The ivy, though, kept growing over the years and it eventually it covered up the word Christ. And today it simply reads, we preach. And that, has what, that is what has happened in the church over the last hundred years or so. We've gone from preaching Christ crucified to just preaching. And this is why we have lost our power. You see, the cross mocks and attacks the values of this world. And so does the church. For the church consists of folks whom God has called out of the world, but rather than choose the rich and the famous, what has God done? He's filled His church with relative nobodies, like me and you. As proof, Paul points to the Corinthians themselves. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, 
And not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Sometimes I think that verse was included just for us here at Calvary Chapel. God chooses the simple, not the smart. The weak, not the strong. The humble, not the noble. And why? Verse 29 tells us that no flesh should glory in His presence. He wants to make certain that the glory goes to Him. That we all understand that His favor, that our salvation is a result of mercy, not merit. The cross, the church, and even the courier are all contrary to the smarts and strength and status that is so important for you and me. In chapter 2, Paul describes the methods of his ministry. He says he relied not on eloquence, but on simplicity of speech. Not on force of, of words, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. Once there was a church that had a painting of the crucifixion right behind the pulpit. But the pastor was a big man. And he blocked the view. One day in his absence, a child asks his mother, Where is the guy who stands where we can't see Jesus? Paul ministered to avoid that same statement ever being repeated of him. Rather than impress folks with his oratory skill or his keen insights, he pointed people to Jesus. He trusted in the simplicity of the message. And in the power of the Holy Spirit. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 4. Paul mentions three types of people. The spiritual man. The natural man. And the carnal man. Which of these three are you? Verses 9 through 10 assure us that God has truth. And spiritual blessing with our name on it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has for you. But you see, that can't be revealed. It can't be apprehended without the aid of the Holy Spirit. And this is why he says, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The spiritual man taps into the blessings that God has for him by staying in tune with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 describes the natural man. Without the Holy Spirit in his life, he's deaf to spiritual communiques. He doesn't hear the voice of God. He's limited to an earthbound, materialistic perspective. You might say the Christian has the mind of Christ, while the unbeliever has lost his mind. Finally, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul mentions the carnal man. He is a babe in Christ. He knows God, but he lives as if he doesn't. He possesses the Holy Spirit but he has yet to allow the Spirit to color his perspective and change his point of view. You know, it's cute to see a little baby sucking on a bottle. But witness a 30-year-old gulping down Gerber's. And it will be disgusting. You'll be upset. It won't be a pleasant sight. And likewise, the carnal Christian needs to grow up. He needs to get a life, a spiritual life, that is, and become a spiritual man. In chapter 3, verse 4, again, Paul brings up the divisions that existed in this church. You know, it's sad when the label Christian is not enough. When you need some further identification. That in itself is a mark of carnality. 
This is why I'm non-denominational. I just want to be a Christian. Speaking of denominations, know how many Southern Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? Well, at last count, 15,738,283, but they can't really agree if the light bulb really needs to be changed. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but first they have to make sure no one is offended by the change. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change it and eight to sell raffle tickets on the old one. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to do it and two to bind the spirit of darkness. And how many Calvary Chapel guys does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but he never shows up on time. You see, all churches have their styles, they have their flavors, their differences, and that's okay. Because there are a lot of different people in the world that God wants to reach. But it's wrong to emphasize our differences as if they make us better than the church down the street. See, we need cooperation in the body of Christ, not competition. For despite all of our differences, we are still one body in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 5, Paul discusses the folly of following men. In Corinth, Paul had sowed the seeds of the gospel. Apollos had watered those seeds. But God is the one who had given the increase. In other words, both the sower and the spigot were simply instruments in the hand of God. Why exalt one above the other when both of them were equally dependent upon the Lord? The foundation of our Christian life is Jesus. We need to understand that. But we are building on that foundation. And one day, we'll all be rewarded for our labor. But those rewards, they will be based not on the quality of our service, nor the quantity of our service, but on the motivation behind our service. Verses 12 through 14 describe the day that we appear before Jesus to receive our reward we're told, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What was the character of it, the motivation behind it? If anyone's work which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. Works done out of the right motivation, out of a love for God, out of a thankful heart, out of a desire for God's glory, and in an attitude of faith, these are the works that will be rewarded. They'll, be, they'll come through the fire as the purest gold. It's the self-centered service. That's what's going to get burned up. The stuff that was done for your own glory, to look good in the eyes of men. Yes, that saint will still be saved, but their service which gets singed in that day of judgment, it's only what was done in sincerity that will be rewarded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul confronts his critics. In verse 1, he calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. A steward was, in a sense, an oriental office manager. His job was to fulfill the owner's objectives. The steward's job description was simple. Verse 2 says, It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You see, the boss 
is the one who's responsible for the strategy, for the direction, for the production, for the imagination. The steward's job was just to be faithful. Just follow orders. And God has called us to be stewards. God is in charge of the, the results. God is the one who takes care of the responsibility. God is the one that impl- supplies the power and the imagination. What we supply is faithfulness. Be a good steward. Paul was judged by his critics. And he makes three statements in response. First, Paul doesn't even judge himself, he says. Rather, he trusts in the grace of God. Rather than look inward, Paul looks upward. Guys, I have found that too much introspection leads only to depression. Faith grows when we get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Second, Paul answers to Jesus, he says, not the Corinthians. The Lord is his judge. And third, all meaningful judgments will be made when Jesus returns. You see, only then will hearts be revealed, will motives be disclosed. Can true judgments be assessed? Let me suggest to you, until then, don't you jump the gun and judge someone else. You see, the cause of division is always pride. One group wanting to be better than the other group. But why are the Corinthians proud? Paul asks in chapter 4, verse 7, For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, how can you be proud when everything you've got was a gift from God? You think about that the next time you get a big head. You get a little bit haughty or too big for your britches. How can you be proud when everything you've got was given to you by God? The Corinthians were concerned with appearing better than others. Wiser, stronger, more distinguished. Paul's ministry, though, glorified Jesus, but at the expense of his own shame and suffering, something the Corinthians would have never done. Paul was willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. How many of you saw the movie Field of Dreams? Yeah, a lot of you did. Ray Kinsella. He hears a voice out in the cornfields telling him to plow under his crop and build a baseball diamond. He builds it and eventually he sees dead ball players working out in the field. His family thinks he's a certifiable nut. No one in town understands his actions. Everyone calls him a fool. But you know, I was thinking, as a Christian, I also have based life-altering decisions on a voice that nobody else has heard. I've taken economic risks to follow that voice. I've seen God playing and in action when no one else saw him. Am I ready to be seen by others the way Ray's family and neighbors saw him? Am I willing to be considered a nut, a fool for the cause of Jesus Christ? Paul closes chapter 4 by reminding his readers of his love for them. He was their spiritual father. A special bond existed between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul had sent Timothy to Corinth, but he would eventually come himself. And he wants his return to them to be a happy reunion. But it's their choice. He says in verse 21, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, it depends on how you respond 
to the correction I'm providing you in this letter. There's a line in a country song that goes, Sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. (laughs) The Corinthians will be the bug if they don't stop bugging Paul. Paul says in chapter 5 verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Incest. It's such an ugly word. And yet there was a case of it going on in the household of God there in Corinth. To Paul's astonishment, there was a man there living with his stepmother. What's worse is according to verse 2, the church was proud of their tolerance. You can hear them now. Well, who are we to judge? Judge not that you be not judged. The most misquoted verse in the Bible. Paul was upset. He was ticked off that nobody in the church had the guts to confront blatant sin in the house of God. Paul tells them they need to excommunicate this couple. Give them the left foot of Christian disfellowship. That's what needs to be done. He says in verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, once you remove them from the protective effects of church life, maybe then this couple will see the consequences of their rebellion, repent of their sin, return to the Savior, and in the end their soul will be saved. It's interesting. Skip ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll see that this discipline worked. For Paul there encourages them to receive this brother back into their fellowship. Guys, it's hard. It's tough. It's one of the very toughest things we do. But from time to time, we too have to exercise church discipline. It's a requirement of God. Just as mothers and fathers in your family have to exercise discipline, so in the body of Christ. Paul warns the Corinthians in verse 6 that sin is like leaven. Just a pinch of sin infects the whole lump of dough. You see, too many Christians handle sin like a cream puff instead of the deadly cobra that it is. Unconfessed sin may keep others out of heaven. Get rid of the leaven in the church. Get rid of the hypocrisy. Get rid of the sin. In verse 7, Paul calls Jesus our Passover. And you remember in the Passover Seder, before the family celebrates the feast, they go around and they eliminate the leaven from the house. The church needs to do the same with hypocrisy and with rebellion. The blatant sinner needs to be disciplined. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 tells us, The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Ironically, these Corinthians, they shunned worldly people while they tolerated worldly Christians. They had it backwards. Hey, expect a sinner to sin. He lacks the power to do otherwise. I get weary of pastors that that get up and sort of blast the evil in society, just sort of rail on the sinners out there. Hey, what do you expect? They're sinners. What do sinners do but sin? Until a person receives Jesus, they lack both the purpose and the power. To clean up their lives. You see, it's the Christian who knows better. 
And it's the Christian who has the power to be better. The unbeliever needs mercy. It's the believer who needs to be disciplined. In chapter 6, Paul corrects another blemish on the Corinthians' reputation. Christians were suing each other in the secular courts, and it was a poor witness. Paul reminds these believers that one day they're going to reign and rule with Christ. They will judge the world. They will even judge angels. Now, I have no idea what that means. I I don't know if one day our guardian angel will come before us and we'll say, Hey, hey, you know, I just got one question, you know. Back there on March the 14th when I had that fender bender, where were you? I don't don't know what that means. But Paul says, one day we're going to judge angels. Certainly then, we can settle our own disputes without the world's help. In chapter 6, verse 9, Paul compiles a list of grisly sinners. Listen to this list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. And then he makes an incredible statement. And such were some of you. The Corinthians. (laughs) They were formerly the scum of the city. And yet God had chosen the most disgraceful to showcase His grace. Guys, no one is beyond God's reach. And such were. Were. Praise the Lord. He saved them. He delivered them from it. But such were some of you. God loves us so much that He takes us just where we're at, right where we're at and just as we are. But He loves us so much He doesn't leave us that way. He changes us as such were some of you. Verse 12 is a vital word on Christian liberty. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. A Christian has incredible freedom. The Christian ethic is the most sweeping ethic of all all social standards. For the Christian, catch this, anything goes. All things are lawful. Anything goes. But not everything is helpful. Embrace Jesus and God plants within you new motivations. You now want to love God. You now want to love your brother. And so the issue for the Christian is no longer, is it lawful, but is it beneficial? Not can I do it, but will it please God and help me grow? I no longer think, what can I get away with to keep from being punished? (laughs) That's no longer my thinking. I now have a new grid for decision making. Will it build me up? Will it bless my brother? Will it glorify God? This is what should govern our actions and our thinking and our decisions. Paul closes chapter 6 by saying that sex is more than a biological function. People today think of the sex act. But understand, sex is more than an action. It's the creating of a spiritual bond. It is the sharing of intimacy, the giving away of yourself to someone else. Paul says in verse 16, to have sex with a harlot forms a bond with that harlot. It makes you one with her. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you've linked the whole body then with a harlot. 
That's a despicable thing to think about. Paul's point is that sex, though it is a physical act, it is laced with spiritual overtones. And it's the bonding involved that causes the confusion and the pain when sex is participated in unless it is accompanied by marriage vows. Give yourself away without getting back that permanent commitment and it only cheapens yourself in your own eyes. It only devalues yourself. And that's why verse 18 says that illicit sex is a sin against your own body. You only cheapen yourself if you give yourself to someone else without a permanent commitment in return. A boy once asked his grandpa, Gramps, your generation didn't have venereal disease. What did you wear to have safe sex? The old man replied, We wore a wedding ring. The only safe sex, spiritually and emotionally and physically, is that between a husband and a wife. We're reminded in verse 19 that we are not our own, that our bodies have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul sums it up in verse 20, For you were bought at a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, chapter 7 continues this talk about sex, but Paul addresses his comments here to married couples. Paul himself preferred a single lifestyle. It gave him more freedom to serve the Lord, but he knew not everyone was called to be single. In fact, verse 9, in verse 9, Paul concedes that for most people, marital pleasures will take the edge of sexual pressures. As he says in verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul teaches that a married person's body belongs to their spouse. Guys, you gave it away on your wedding day. Don't try to take it back now. Verse 3 tells married couples to render or to give to each other The affection due. The Song of Solomon tells us that sex is a delight. Here Paul says that sex is a duty. Render to each one the affection due. You owe it to your spouse to have sex with them lovingly, passionately, and frequently. Paul says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another. Let me issue a warning to all married couples here tonight. Sex is a tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. It is a dumb move to ration out sex or to punish a spouse by holding it back. Guys, you do that and you're only playing into the hands of the tempter. The best advice that I can give to a married couple is to have sex regularly. Have a lot of sex. The Bible says it'll do your marriage good. I'm serious. For me personally, I believe that sex is best on days that begin with the letter T. Tuesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, (laughs) even today and tomorrow. You can tell my wife I said that. Divorce was never God's intention. Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, it states, The Lord God of Israel says that He hates 
divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it puts it this way. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Remember with God, no problem is unsolvable. But if a spouse does depart, if a spouse leaves or abandons the marriage, according to verse 11, he or she has two options. They can remain unmarried or they can try to be reconciled to their estranged spouse. Understand, many of these first Christians, they were in a unique situation. Before they were married, many of them had never heard the gospel. And so when the message was preached, some believed and found that their spouses didn't. And it resulted in these unequally yoked unions. Believers married to unbelievers. And it made for some stressful situations. There's an old Puritan proverb that goes, marry a child of the devil and you're going to have problems with your father-in-law. A believer and an unbeliever are going to have a tumultuous marriage and that's why if you're single, you need to know, you kids over here in the corner, you listen to me, you need to know, you will never marry an unbeliever if you never date one. You remember that. In verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses these mixed marriages. If the unbeliever wants to stay married, then the believer should do so. Who knows if a good witness won't lead to the unbeliever's salvation. In addition, verse 14 says that the presence of that believer in the house provides a godly and moral influence for the children. But if the non-Christian in the marriage abandons the Christian, then the believer is under no obligation and can move on with his or her life. Of course, Paul's discussion on marriage brings up a bigger issue. How should a person's spiritual conversion affect their social position or status in society? And Paul tells us that the key to living the Christian life is to bloom wherever you're planted. If you're married and you become a Christian, don't think you need to change your marital status. No, be the best wife or the best husband you can be. If you're a Jew, be a converted Jew. If you're a Gentile, be a Gentile believer. Remain where you're called. If you're a slave, be a Christian. Employ a Christian witness there on the job. Verse 20 says it best. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. In other words, don't wait to begin to live the Christian life until you move or until you change jobs or until you find new friends or until you straighten out family problems. Start living for Jesus right where you're at in the circumstances and situations you find yourself in tonight. We used to have a guy who came to Calvary Chapel who was a distribution manager for Budweiser. He drove his company van to the morning, Saturday morning prayer meetings, the men prayer meetings, and he would park it way down the street and then walk down the street so no one caught wind of what he did for a living. When he finally confessed his occupation to me, he was braced. I could tell he was expecting me to reject him as a brother in Christ. But I surprised him. I told him, God wants you to start right where you're at. And so we'll help you be the best beer truck driver for Jesus you can possibly be. I realized that he would encounter difficulties along the way, that he would have problems. He did, 
and he ultimately resigned, but it wasn't me that told him to, it was the Holy Spirit. He started, though, right where he was at. Hey, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. God will lead you and guide you and direct you from there. Paul has been speaking about marriage. But in verses 29 through 40, he extols the benefits of singleness. Paul tells us in verses 32 and 33, He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. I've got four cars I have to keep up. Six mouths to feed. Grass to mow. Prom dresses to buy. Little league fees to pay. Being married has cost me a lot of money. You know, none of those things. I, I would, I'd pave over my yard if I wasn't married. I, I'd never have to mow grass again. So much of my time and energy and effort is spent on things because I'm married. When I was single, man, I stayed out all night witnessing to people about Jesus. I would hang with my Christian friends. No cares, no worries, nobody to answer to. But now I'm married. Now I am shackled to a wife and four kids. I'm responsible. Don't misunderstand. I love being shackled. I I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love being shackled to my wife and to my four kids. But with the blessing of a family comes responsibilities that at times limit what I can do for God. I'm not as free to serve and sacrifice for the Lord as I would be if I were single. Guys, if you're single, realize you have benefits. This is the one time in your life where you can serve the Lord without distractions. For most of you, some of you kids back here, this opportunity won't last long. So take advantage of it while you have it, while you're single. Give your all to Jesus Christ. If you want, sell everything you've got and move to Ireland to start a church. If you're single, you can do that. Did you hear about the wedding at the bride's house? It, it started at 645, but the host forgot one detail. Right in the middle of the wedding vows... As the pastor said, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? A little bird slid from the mouth of the overhead clock and sounded, cuckoo, 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 seven cuckoos. Well, that sort of sums up Paul's attitude on marriage. Why be a cuckoo and forego your freedom? Serve God without distraction or attachment. Be single for the Savior. Take advantage of the opportunity. You singles have a great benefit. Use it for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 deals with the problem of meat sacrificed to idols. In pagan societies like Corinth, the meat sold in the market was left over from the temple sacrifices. In other words, before it became a Big Mac, it had been somebody's offering to an idol. This was a non-issue for some believers. They realized that the idol was just a stick of wood, that the meat was just that, just a piece of meat. 
They were free to eat a burger. But other believers, they couldn't shake this notion of guilt by association. And in their mind, to eat meat that had been dedicated to an idol was somehow to participate in that idolatry. You know, there are people today who share the same feeling toward things that are used in sinful ways and and they just can't ever see those things being used among Christians in a godly way. Things like face cards or dice or tobacco or alcohol or dancing or music. And they get hung up on all these different issues. Most practices and possessions and pleasures are neither good or evil on their own. You see, it's how they're used that determines their character. And as Christians, we are free to participate in these things as long as the object of our use is good and godly. And as long as our freedom doesn't cause someone else to stumble. Paul says in verse 9, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. My glass of wine might give a brother an excuse to get drunk. My secular music might lead another believer to think secular thoughts. At times I need to curtail my freedom for the sake of a weaker brother. The person who lacks liberty needs to grow in knowledge. The person who knows the truth, though, needs to grow in love. As Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. A little knowledge needs to be tempered with a lot of love. In chapter 9, Paul describes how he personally curtailed his Christian liberty to keep the Corinthians from stumbling. He says that the other apostles, they took their wives on long trips. They expected the churches to pay for their expenses. And Paul doesn't condemn their actions. In fact, he insists that their practices are proper. They're based on Scripture. In verse 7, he says, whoever goes to war at his own expense. In other words, you know, it's good to pay your pastor. Can I hear an amen? Good, thank you. Verse 9 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And Paul explains, God didn't put this verse in the Old Testament just because he cared about oxen. It's an analogy for us. It illustrates the principle that he states in verse 11, that if a pastor feeds you spiritually, then you should feed him materially. And yet Paul says in verse 15, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. Paul says, I have the freedom to do these things. I can expect pay for my ministry, but I have curtailed my liberties because I haven't wanted anyone to call my motives into question, to think that I did it for money. He says in verse 16, For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Job, it was more than a way to make a living. And it was an inescapable calling from God. And to prove it, while in Corinth, Paul never took a dime from the church. He made tents in his spare time to support himself. Paul's goal in verse 18, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. Isn't that refreshing? To find a pastor who goes out of his way to protect the reputation of the gospel and the integrity of the ministry. 
In chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, Paul reveals his evangelistic strategy. He states in verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. When Hudson Taylor arrived in China, he struggled in his attempts to share the gospel. That is, until the Lord told him to give up his western clothes and to cut his hair like the locals. What he did offended the other missionaries, but the Chinese started to listen. Taylor learned that to relay the gospel to the Chinese, he had to be relatable. You see, most likely, who's going to win the biker to Jesus? It is the salesman who's going to win the salesman. It is the housewife who's going to win the housewife. Paul, in his attempts to reach people, he, he, thought, he sought first to identify and relate to the person he wanted to reach. He found common ground and he built a bridge. He says, I have become all things to all men in order to win some. I have a friend of mine I've been witnessing to and he's into NASCAR. And I know nothing about NASCAR. But whenever I get together with him, I fake it. Hey, did you watch the race this weekend? Yeah, I heard it was a good one. Yeah, somebody won. I forget who. <laughs> but just building a bridge, just trying to relate, trying to find some common ground, build that bridge, and then leap over to the things of God. Paul closes chapter 9 by comparing a Christian to an athlete. Both run to win. Both train to win. Both desire to win. Both follow the rules so they won't be disqualified and they will win. The only difference is the prize that they're after. The athlete goes to all this effort to win what? <laughs> to win some trophy that gets tossed into a trunk and hid in a garage. Or some laurel wreath the Greeks ran for. They ran for this little, this little circle of leaves. I mean, in a few days, it's going to shrivel up and look like the pressed flowers in the family Bible. They run for little. Whereas the Christian, he runs for an eternal prize that will never lose its luster. How much more serious should we be about our training and our discipline and our desires for Jesus Christ? One of my favorite quotes of all time was from the legendary football coach John Heisman. On the first day of practice, he used to hold up a football. And he would say to his players, Gentlemen, better to have died a small boy than to fumble this. <laughs> and it set a tone that this is going to be serious business. So is serving God. So is sharing the gospel. Always remember, eternity is at stake. He says in verse 26, this is why I don't shadow box. I fight to win. I make my efforts count. Let me ask you, are you in it to win it? Lord, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these chapters and the lessons that it brings to us. So much to think about, so much to chew on tonight. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to apply these truths to our lives. Bless the singles that are here tonight. Help them to take advantage 
of their single status. Lord, bless the married couples. Help them love each other faithfully. Help them to enjoy the wonderful gifts you've given them. Bless us all, Lord, as we seek to be the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that no cliques would be started in our midst, but that we would all remember that we share a common ground, Jesus Christ. Help Him, Lord, to be the main thing in our fellowship. Lord, we love You. We pray these things tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.